You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to Trek FM's local watering hole, the 602 Club. I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me as she is pretty much every single week is the ever-vescent, ever-wonderful Christy Morris. How's it going, Christy? It's good. I like that word, effervescent. Well, thank you. I just, you know, it really does apply to you, uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to be on this episode, honestly. I mean, I'm always excited, I feel like, but... This one is kind of special because it's a movie that I've always wanted to see and I haven't had a chance to see. And so finally got an opportunity to watch Willow so we can talk about it on the show. Same here. Actually, I had always heard about it. Uh, actually, the first time I had heard about it was uh, from my husband and then again from some friends of mine on Bruise and Blasters, Chris and Joe. Um, so I'm curious to see what everybody thought about it. Me too. And we have with us the incomparable, the unstoppable Bruce Gibson. Megatron Gibson. That's my name. <laughs> I thought yours was Admiral Rex. I'm changing it. Actually, you know, we uh, recorded a Literary Treks recently and there was a name that came up. And I think it was through the Star Trek versus Transformers comic that I really liked. And I said I was going to change my name to it. And I don't remember what that is now. Darn. Oh wow! So you just said Megatron sounds right. Megatron sounds there you great. Go. <laughs> well, the funniest part about all of this is that back when we did the 200th episode, the plan was to do Willow. And Bruce was going to be on that show. John Mills was going to be on that show. And then I went to look to see where Willow was available. And at the time, it wasn't available anywhere unless I wanted to pirate it. And I'm not a pirate. Arr. So <laughs> we didn't record it then. Uh, but luckily uh, for the, I think it is the 30th anniversary, they had brought out um, brought a Willow again. Uh, and they put it on Blu-ray. And so I snagged it. And I got Bruce. And I got Christy. And we're going to talk about it. So I'm really, really excited to do this. Um, you know, this is a George Lucas special uh, with Ron Howard, which, you know, Everybody knows how I feel about Solo. So very excited to dive into this one with you guys. But before we do that, of course, don't forget. Well, how could you forget? We remind you every single week that you can find the 602 Club wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed so you get the show as soon as it downloads to you. Uh, as soon as we get it uploaded, you get the episode. Uh, you can also review us wherever you get your podcasts. But specifically, if you're on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Hit us up with a star rating review. Help people find the show. Help the show grow. If you love the 602 Club, then you know you want other people to listen to it, right? Well, the best way to do that is by giving us a review. So do that. Give us the, the written review and the star rating. really helps. You can find us on Twitter at TrackFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrackFM. We're online at Track.FM. Of course, you can also 
go to the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group that is housed on Facebook. Type Babel into the search field there, and that would let you in. Or if you're on the website at trek.fm, you can hit discussion on any of the menu bars, and you can get in that way. And then last but not least, if you would like to send Christy and I an email, we love getting emails from listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Go <laughs> over to trek.fm slash contact, choose the show, and choose... The 602 Club, and then that email will come to us, and we'll be able to respond to you in kind. Now, kind of screwed this up, but my first time for watching this was just the other night. Mine too. And <laughs> Christie's was the, as well. But this is a movie. I mean, this is, movie's been out since 1988. It kind of became like this kind of cult classic. Of course, if you're a George Lucas fan, you kind of know about this movie. So, Bruce, I was really interested for you what the first time was that you saw this and what your experience was like, because I feel like this isn't your first time. Well, young man, you're right. It's not my first time. <laughs> uh, no, I did see this in 1988 in the theater. I was in college, and uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, I just, I vaguely remember it coming out and thinking, wow, this is like the first like real movie that we're getting from George Lucas since Return of the Jedi. I don't remember when Howard the Duck was. I think it was before this. But I remember thinking that didn't really count because it wasn't fantasy. I thought this would be the next movie that is the most similar to Star Wars because it's a fantasy film from George Lucas and Ron Howard directing, even though he was still somewhat of a young director at that point. I was really excited about seeing this movie and uh, because I thought this might be in, uh, kicking off a new series of movies from George Lucas. So that's where my head was at the time when I went to go see it. So did you do you feel like you came out pretty positive or negative or where were you at the time? I came out thinking, well, that ain't Star Wars. That's pretty much where I came out. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. It's it's not it's not Star Wars. Although I would say I feel like that the storyline when I was thinking through this, you know, the storyline has a lot of similarities to a lot of Star Wars motifs. Mm -hmm. Um and so I I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of that because the story I feel like feels like just watching it, I was like, Oh, this is so George Lucas. Yeah, it did feel very much like George Lucas. He has a, he's very good at storytelling in mythology and fantasy uh, in that genre. So I I really did feel like it was him, but I also felt like he was borrowing a lot from other fantasy stories, which is funny because that's essentially what he does also with Star Wars. It just takes place in a space kind of sci-fi universe where he's borrowing from older stories and putting into that storyline. And this is taking place in more of the fairy tale land that he's borrowing. Because I felt a lot of things from like Snow White and The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. There's different aspects like that I could see in this. And it did feel very much like George Lucas in that hero's journey type of storytelling. And, you know, it's funny that you say that, Bruce, because it, I don't know why we immediately think of, oh, in a sort of in a negative way, sometimes this borrows from these other things. But technically, it's all borrowing from the same mythology. So it, it, it absolutely does feel similar because Star Wars, which, you know, in the timeline of George Lucas movies came out first before Willow. 
um, borrowed from mythology heavily. And then this did as well. And then even in this movie, I felt some like biblical references would, which would sort of go along those same lines um, with uh, the baby in the river. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I love it though, because these are the kind of storytelling devices that are timeless and that really work no matter what setting you're in. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, you know, Christy, you mentioned the timeline. Uh, this is something that Lucas had in his imagination and kind of as an idea since 72. Mm-hmm. So before Star Wars came out and, you know, while he's working kind of on the Star Wars, uh, the, the first film and, and, you know, just really starting on that journey, this is something he already has there. Um, I wanted to, to, to ask you, because I think, Bruce, you, you touch on something that's really interesting you know the, the story of Star Wars. I think you, we we feel like works so well because it is in space, and that helps us forget maybe a lot of the tropes that we see from uh, you know other mythologies and those kind of things. Whereas I do, it is interesting here because you know you mentioned like the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. Very much a lot of this feels like a, specifically the Hobbit. Um, you know, you have the small character who goes on a journey in a world that's much bigger than they are and they they have to find their courage you know um and in fact you know that's even uh, one of the lines from the hobbit movies you know uh when gandalf looks at bilbo and he says there's something different about you and bilbo says to him i found my courage you know and that's that's really what we get here do you think that in some ways that because we're in a fantasy world that then kind of we can immediately go more one for one. Okay, this feels like this. This feels like this. Do you feel like that hurts or do you feel like that doesn't really matter? I almost feel like it may hurt it a little because I I think there's always that reference to something else because it visually looks like something else. It's one thing to borrow some storyline tropes and put it into a different context and a different visual medium in a different universe. And you may relate to some of that and you may notice it, but it feels different. In this, it looks the same and it feels the same. So it's like Christy was saying, biblical references and feeling things like out of the Bible, you know, immediately my wife was watching the movie with me and as soon as the baby is put into the river and flown down the river. She's like, Moses. And then my daughter walks in and she goes, oh, look, it's Moses. Like they start saying Moses because <laughs> it looks exactly like that. And, you know, there was this one uh, shot of, uh, of Willow and his band of brothers basically walking across a log above. And I thought, oh my gosh, that looks like it's from Snow White. Like those are the seven dwarfs up there crossing a lot, like it's shot for shot. And we know how Lucas loves Disney. Yeah. So, and it almost <laughs> felt like it was, I mean, I'm okay with borrowing, but there's just times that there were so many visual cues that you felt like it was just pulled directly out of a movie and plopped into this one. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you on some of those things, but I, I think still, I feel like it was different because it had these other things that happened that weren't exactly the same as Lord of the Rings. Um, even though the, the vir- the environment was the same, um, which I, I do feel like felt a little repetitive. Um, I still felt like it was a new story. Um, 
And I, I honestly got more similarities to me to like Dungeons and Dragons, which was happening around the time that this was made as well. Um, and then I looked up, um, cause it made me think of the Princess Bride when it comes to like the dogs. Um, and apparently the Princess Bride came out a year before this. So it, it, that actually, I don't know, it made me like it more, not less. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I really did catch the kind of Princess Brideness of this movie, and and the, it's very similar. And one of the things because I, I felt like I could fall into the trap of comparing this to, you know, all the things I know now, which is that I've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, I've seen the Hobbit movies, you mm-hmm. know, so I could go there, but I had to put myself okay, put go back to 1988. And we didn't get fantasy movies. The only fantasy movies that we really had then um, are like Labyrinth and those kind of things. And those weren't huge commercial successes, which is one of the reasons it took them a while to get Willow made in the first place. But the only, uh, and then I thought, okay, well, what have we seen from Tolkien? You know, and really the only thing you've seen is the Rankin Bass Hobbit, uh, which is a cartoon. So, you know, like you said, Bruce, you start to see the places where I, I think very much you get some of those pulls from like Disney um, with uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and that kind of stuff. And that's very classic Lucas to kind of use that stuff. So kind of thinking overarching like the story and the setting for all of this, I, I became much more comfortable kind of putting myself in that mindset. I have to take out of my head all of the things that I know that are 88 and beyond because that doesn't exist. And I have to try and put myself into the place of, you know, basically being a kid again at that time period where, you know, um, I grew up watching Star Wars then and everything like that. Those are the things that exist. So I think that this does a pretty good job with the storyline and its setting by creating something that feels familiar, but it's also new and I, I think, Christy, you even called out, you know, you got the biblical reference of, you know, Moses in the river moment. But honestly, the whole plot of this movie feels very much like after Jesus is born, right? When when Herod is trying to kill all of the boys of a certain age mm-hmm. because he's he's been, for you know, foretold by the wise men that this Messiah is coming. Uh, and so this is exactly the story that's playing out in this movie. You know, you have the f- foretelling of a baby that will be born that will bring peace and that will bring down, you know, this evil Barmorda character, you know, and she's furious with that. And so she goes into a fit and a rage uh, and orders all of the babies to be searched. And, you know, she's just killing people left and right. So, you know, I mean, it, it there is kind of a biblical feel to this this movie into this fantasy which yeah i mean uh, that's something lucas is very good at you know and when we look at star wars so for me kind of putting myself in that mindset i was like this this really does i think work as a story and as a structure um if i allow myself to be in that time period instead of like comparing it to lord of the rings or to the hobbit or you know any of the that are you know fantasy movies that we've gotten over the years so but i do see how it would be hard not to go into it 
with all of that on your mind since we have seen all of these movies since then. I think it was funny thinking about that he had had this idea since 1972 and didn't get to make it until 88 because the the issue with it trying to get made was, like you said, that nobody was willing to produce it because at the time this genre of um, fantasy and supernatural films wasn't popular yet. And then now you look at this huge success of that genre and we think, man, all of those different producers were so dumb not to pick this up. And But, you know, like you said, if you put yourself back in the mindset, though, of what's going on in 88, it wasn't at all that kind of outlook. So I get it. But looking back now, I'm like, man, they could have made so much money. Yeah, but did this movie make that much money? I don't remember it being a big hit at that time. So it wasn't a huge hit. It was what, like, uh, twenty million over what the budget was. Yeah, it does. The, so, um, it was number one its opening weekend, but then it was facing competition from like Crocodile Dundee two, Big, um, Rambo three, uh, and it did make uh fifty seven million in the North American box office. And again, you have to put yourself in the mind frame of that time period, which is. It's really good. And so it wasn't a blockbuster, but it wasn't a flop because it had strong international and home video and television sales. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you put all that together, this movie actually did really well. Um, and, you know, uh, it it wasn't a huge critical success. I mean, if you look like at Rotten Tomatoes now, it's at 50%. Um, you know, well, they so don't know what the they're pe- talking about. So, you know, um, <laughs> it it's... I think it did, it did well, you know, it just, it wasn't Star Wars, right? Like you said, Bruce, when you came out of it from seeing it the first time, like, oh, this is not Star Wars. Um, and the, and the success of the movie was not Star Wars either. So, um, and I wonder, and I wanted to ask you guys about this because, you know, setting the movie with your main character, Warwick Davis, you, you know, everybody didn't really know as anyone other than an Ewok, which meant we didn't know Warwick Davis. So this is really kind of the first time we get introduced to him as a, as a character actor. You know, he's only 18 years old at this point and he's playing our main character. What did you think of, you know, Warwick and and the performance that he gives here? And, you know, I, I think Lucas, uh, obviously, you know, he mentions the fact that look, a lot of my stories are about the little guy um, overcoming you know, and so it was just much more literal this time. I was impressed by Warwick Davis in this. And I'm not talking about the first time I watched it. I don't remember what I thought of him then, but I'm more impressed with him now, I'm sure, because I know that when he did Return of the Jedi, where he played an Ewok, he didn't have an acting background. He didn't have any real acting skills going into that. And knowing that and then jumping to Willow, I was thinking when I was watching it this time, okay, am I going to be sold by his performance? Because he really wasn't much of an actor at that point. Didn't have much acting credits is what I should say. And I was actually very surprised how much I enjoyed his performance. He, it's a natural ability that he has in acting. I think he's a very good actor now, 
But I see where he comes from in Willow that he had that natural ability because for someone like him to lead a movie and carry it all the way through like he did, I think he did a fantastic job. I'm not saying it's an Academy Award winning performance, but I did not walk away from that movie feeling like, uh, this guy, yeah, he, he's getting there. There were some moments that he was good and some moments he was not. I thought he was solid throughout the whole thing. I was engaged with him and liking his character and he was able to carry the movie. So he definitely worked for me. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. And this was the first time I've actually seen him um, in an acting role um, that wasn't, you know, as the Ewok. Um, so I, it was definitely interesting to see how it unfolded. But as it even first begins meeting his character I felt the feeling of like when I watched Hook for the first time and like you're seeing Robin Williams discover that he really was Peter Pan again like it was like that sense of childlike wonder watching Warwick play Willow um it kind of hard to explain but it, it just like hit me in the feels I guess is the best way to say it it really was like a heartwarming performance and um, especially the fact that he was only 18 at the time and then he's playing a father of two children and going off to, you know, save this baby and everything. It, that's a lot of um, maturity to play on screen for somebody who's only 18. Yeah, he did not so seem I, like he was a teenager. He acted like no. he was adult, like he was a father. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I would, came away from this thinking was, you know, being a character in this movie who's married and has two kids and seems to have this history with him, right? You know, and then the arc that he goes through from being somebody who's timid and somebody who doesn't truly kind of believe in himself to finding himself through his adventures and being somebody who's who becomes more of a leader throughout the the entire thing so that everybody by the end is kind of looking at him you know he's the one that helps come up with the idea right um to to save everyone you know when they're going to go storm the castle like it's his idea and so like i just i really thought that he does a great job and like you said bruce to to remember that he's not really an actor who's been you know this isn't what he's been trained for, you know. Um, he was hired because of his size for uh, the, you know, Star Wars and and Return of the Jedi. But I kind of felt from his character and some of the ways that he was able to portray himself, some of the naturalness that you got from, you know, the Star Wars three. Um, you know, Mark and Carrie and Harrison, all relatively new, you know. To, to, to acting and, and weren't like mainstays or anything. You know, Harrison Ford had been in the biggest movie with um, American Graffiti, you know. And so I feel like he, he was able to glean some of that and that kind of that characterization. And just he, I can't imagine what it's like to be a 18-year-old kid in a movie and just have all of this imagination get to run away with you know um when i look at the sets and what they created here like um it doesn't seem like it's a hard job but knowing where he comes from it couldn't have been easy for him and i think he does a very good job of playing willow 
and giving us a, a center point to kind of follow throughout the entire movie. And I, I really enjoyed watching his arc, you know, going from somebody who's very un, unsure of themselves to being somebody who is much more sure of themselves um, and much more of, you know, a, a leader, you know, and it's it's um it is interesting because it does feel very much like the hobbits in the Lord of the Rings, you know, when they return to the Shire at the end they're much different characters than when they left, you know, mm-hmm. and when he rides back in on his horse, it's the same experience. He is a completely different man than the one who left before. Uh, and uh, I think Warwick Davis plays that part really well. So I was really pleased, you know, um, and I'm glad too, because, you know, obviously if work doesn't work in this movie, I feel like the movie doesn't work at all. <laughs> like everything just falls apart. Work. It's no longer the Willow show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Willow would be the last character you wanted to spend time with. So how did you guys feel about uh, good old Val Kilmer playing Mad Mardigan as our, uh, you know, boastful, slightly, I would say, maybe immature mercenary swordsman who ends up ends up helping Willow on his quest? So, yeah, I'm totally the typical girl when it comes to this kind of character in a movie in princess bride and in this movie i fell for this guy i thought he was beautiful and funny and just absolutely uh, luscious locks yes he had some great hair it was funny though because seeing val kilmer and other things being used to him having very short blonde hair (laughs) long brown hair was a little weird but uh, I, I loved the comedic relief that he provided, especially in the scenes where he was dressed as a woman. Um, and uh, I loved the play back and forth between him and Willow and the baby. Um, you know, when you're trying to gauge whether or not Mad Mardigan is going to be truly terrible and just ditch the baby because he wants to be free um, or not. Um and then the the back and forth when they meet the extra tiny people, the brownies. Yes, <laughs> the brownies. Uh, I, I love having the two of them along with Mad Mardigan and Willow on the trip. The, the way the four of them play off each other was hilarious. I have to say with Val Kilmer that I thought he was beautiful. I thought he was funny. Uh, wait, I'm just reiterating what Christy just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, um, I I like this type of character. I like his portrayal. I think I just would have wanted a little more of him in this. I don't I don't know how to say this except that I think when I was watching it this time, I was expecting to go into this and think, okay, he's the one that's going to steal the show for me, and he didn't. He just fell in with all the other characters for me. There was no real standout for me in this movie and I I almost want to knock that down a little on him because I really thought he was the one that was going to really sell the movie for me. And it's not that he did a bad job. I liked him in this character and I liked the character. I think maybe I just wanted something more from him and I can't put my finger on that. I, I think I see what you're saying, Bruce. I think that there are, I think that there could be places here where you could add more depth to the character so he's not just comic relief. Right. And I feel like True. that they never take that extra step. You know, and I think 
so we we talked about the princess bride right and i think that's the thing that they do with um the princess bride right wesley could be just kind of a cardboard character but they find ways to add depth to this character um and mainly that's through the experience that is that he had in the time from when he left the farm to when we meet him again and that all adds to kind of having a character that has more depth now you know we get the sense that that mad morgan has a history you know with that uh and i cannot remember the the character's name but it it's the soldier the the lead soldier we we get the idea that he has a history with them but that we never really see the way in which his history kind of influences the present here. Um, and then will influ- influence the future. And I do feel like that's one place where we could have given the character um, a another level, you know. Like, I feel like he's a two-tier character, but really what we want is like a three. We just want him to level up, you know? And so that when he kind of turns out to, like you said, Christy, to not be a total D-bag and like not care about the baby or Willow really at all, he ends up sticking with them. Mm-hmm. Like what is it in his past or who he is that we haven't seen revealed that makes him that kind of person that would actually stick with Willow and right. this baby? You know, so um, I think you're I think you're right, Bruce. It's it's like almost there, but it's not quite there. And I don't think that's necessarily his fault. It feels like that's something that's just kind of missing from the script for him as a character. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's I could use a little more depth uh, from this character, maybe more of a backstory or more of what his motivation is. Um, But yeah, it just just needs that little something extra and i think he would have blown it away right yeah I, i'm glad you mentioned that because it reminded me that you're right bruce they'd never explained why um the the other soldier thought he was a coward or um why he supposedly left whatever group they were in together they never explain any of his backstory so actually that's a good point yeah and i mean I- Val Kilmer is a, a singularly interesting actor. Um, he has such a... Uh, it's strange to say, but I feel like a lot of this character seems a lot of Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer is just a strange person. Every time I see mm-hmm. him in an interview, he's just kind of a... He's just out there, man. You know, And so um, I think he felt like he had a good time playing this character because he kind of got to ham it up. Um, so yeah, I, I think all of those parts he did really well. So, uh, what did you guys think of, uh, Sorsha? You know, we've got the warrior daughter who ends up turning against her mother because she falls in love with Mad Mardigan. Was it too cliched? Did they do that well enough for you guys? What did you think? I thought that they had some good, um, interplay together I I thought that it could have been a little bit more though explaining the reason behind his sudden feeling of love toward her you know he should have maybe realized what it was that caused it 
but they just sort of left Other you hanging. Other than just like pixie dust, basically. <laughs> right. Or or at least had him say in the dialogue, oh, it must have been that pixie dust that hit me in the face. You know, it, but they, they just sort of left it hanging. And then two, I don't know necessarily if it was that she's not that great of an actress, but I didn't feel like um, Sorsha was very believable or, you know, really went as far with the character as she could have. Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. I just, she just felt a little out of place to me. Um, there were some moments in the beginning that I liked when, you know, she's on the horse with Mad Mardigan and, and she escapes him. And I like that scene. But then when it got to the point where, you know, he's jumping around fighting a two headed dragon and fort and sword fighting with others. And she's just standing there watching him during the battle. And all of a sudden, and it keeps cutting to her watching. him. <laughs> yeah. She's just standing there watching him just like, you know, she's a warrior and she's just going to stop there and just stare at him fighting. And then when he is near her, she kisses him. It was just like, right. Ugh. That was too. It was cliche. like at first it felt like a Han and Leia vibe, and then they suddenly made her turn to goo. Yeah, she went from the dark side to the light side, like in a snap. But that was the look of love. Oh, whatever. You know, <laughs> like she said, that, that's what should have been playing her. over that scene. But then again, the she would say, you know, Mad Mardigan is beautiful and funny, just like Christy was saying. <laughs> He's just great. <laughs> uh, you know. I I agree with you guys because this is the thing is that, you know, they set up the idea that she's going to betray her mother, right? You Mm -hmm. know, her, her, the queen's vizier or seer or whatever it is, uh, they never explain who that really is, but says, you know, she'll betray you. And so they have that already set up. And the thing about her character is really interesting because it makes sense in some ways like here is a a woman whose mother treats her like dirt and has never really told her that she means anything to her Mm -hmm. um and so she feels very unloved um you know by anyone and her life is transactional you know she is you you do this you get this from me you know and then she comes across mad mardigan and willow and all of these other people and she sees them helping each other where there doesn't really seem to be a lot of benefit in return for them doing the actions that they're doing. And in some ways I feel like she kind of comes across, you know, unconditional type of love for the first time. And that's what kind of leads to her change. All that said, which that's fine. I just don't think it's necessarily played all that well. And I don't feel like they do a good job of, completely playing out that arc in the movie well enough. Like yep. I get what they're going for completely. I think that's, I think it's really strong what they're actually going for, um, for somebody cause, because it's not just the love of Val Kilmer, right? She's actively deciding to switch sides because she, I think she sees that the side her mother is on. She doesn't want to be somebody who's nothing but, for themselves and selfish and all of those things that are so classic George Lucas, right? It's just, I don't feel, and, and this is where the Mad Mardigan part, where it's not quite enough depth. I think there isn't enough depth here as well 
for Sorsha, but mm-hmm. I also don't think that the I don't think that Joanne Watley I just don't think she she brings it as, as, as much as she needed to either. So we're in agreement then. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think I think absolutely. Um and it's not a detriment to the movie in in the sense that like it doesn't ruin the movie for me or anything, right. but it would definitely help if that part of the story were stronger because I think in the end that kind of becomes the weakest part of the story then. Mm-hmm. Um and so it it does in the overall picture of like, you know, when you start to then kind of what will come down to the end and ratings, it's like it definitely brings down the rating a little bit because a big part of the movie, a whole subplot of the movie isn't as powerful as it could have been, you know, mm-hmm. especially when I think about what they are trying to do and how great that could be. It just doesn't play off as well as it could. So I don't know if there's a lot to say about the queen because I, I was very shocked that she wasn't even in the movie very much. Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> She's just there, you know, just being evil. Where's the baby? Ah, bring the baby to me. Ah, I'm going to kill everybody if you don't do what I tell you. I mean, that's pretty much her. That's it. Well, and I mean, <laughs> then apparently most likely some sort of child sacrifice where she's going to send the baby into an like alternate dimension so they can never and somehow the lightning is going to get the baby there yeah (laughs) lightning gonna get you good um yeah it just it, it was interesting because the 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 real big bad there is is not really there's not a lot of time spent on them so um what okay Besides that, we've got Finn Rizel, who's our aging sorceress, uh, who keeps turning into different animals. Bless her heart. <laughs> Which was, that part is actually pretty funny. I, I liked that. <laughs> I liked watching a possum try to talk. It was adorable. Yeah, my youngest daughter walked into the room when I was watching it when the possum was talking, and she just looked at the TV and was like, what? What are you watching? <laughs> this this scares me. <laughs> she just walked out then. But uh, yeah, and then the goat, you know, <laughs> just was this your younger, more judgmental daughter? Yes, yes. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I love her because of her way of looking at you like that <laughs> all the time, all the time. She's fourteen, right? So yeah, and I mean, I think that. You know, then when we see her as a human, I actually enjoyed her uh, portrayal at the end and and fighting the queen and and that I, I you know I thought she was pretty good. I I liked her. I believed her. But I'm curious though, Bruce. In that scene, it, did you feel like I did this moment when it seemed like it was maybe going to be that both women were evil? You know, well, that's the thing I like about uh, Finn Raziel, because she does feel like she could be evil, but she's not. And I love that in characters. I like characters that are good, but there's a certain edge to them that you almost think that they're bad or they're evil. And that's what makes them interesting to me. But you're right. I did feel like, you know, is she good or is she bad? Because she seems like she could be bad. I mean, she looks, she's this elderly lady that just looks like she's 
Yeah, you can't trust elderly ladies. You can't trust elderly (laughs) ladies. Not ones that are running around with, you know, wands for sure, but yeah. I'm glad that you Uh, got that. The views expressed by the alternate hosts on this show (laughs) do not reflect the management or staff of Trek FM. I was poking fun at Bruce, okay? I don't think that either. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a moment in the, that final fight between Finn and the Queen that it felt like it, the cackle that came out of Finn to me felt a little a little Gollum-ish. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. Have I thought she was a good guy and now she's turned bad too and they both just are selfish people that want to rule the castle and they're going to, you know, both end up killing each other? But then, of course, we know how it turned out. Obviously, she wasn't bad after all. Well, that's how I feel when I watch the Golden Girls, because I always think that Dorothy <laughs> is probably evil and she's going to fight Blanche. And anyway, it's just because they're old <laughs> ladies going at it. Wow, this has descended into some sort of like geriatric chaos. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, it was interesting because I, I thought it was fun for them to kind of do this whole thing where... She keeps turning into different animals. And then because of the, you know, fairy that we've run into earlier, we kind of expect that Finn Rizal is going to be a beautiful sorceress. Like she's, you know, going to turn into everything that, that the other sorceress was. And then when she's not, I think that was a nice change of pace, you know, to not have it turn out to be um, what you're expecting, which is, yeah, you're just kind of expecting her to be this beautiful sorceress who had been cursed you know and then i love that that the reason is she's been cursed for so long she's aged mm-hmm. you know and it's 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 a nice change of pace i think that was a good surprise for the movie um you know i think the actress was fine i mean her role's not huge or anything so but beyond that though i mean we got to talk about the brownie duo yes cuz uh, I don't know one why they're called brownies. <laughs> well, but I keep expecting them to sell Girl Scout cookies. My husband that told me or, to swear I mean, not to make that did joke. Did they step but in a I lot of poo? And that's why they're called brownies. I don't know. I looked at Michael, my husband, during this movie, and I said, "And that's the story of where the Girl Scouts came from." <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Kevin I was Pollock a brownie. Was a Girl Scout. Got it. Yep. I thought it was funny that the that Kevin Pollock was one of these brownies, like, and that he was very funny. Um, and and for the most part, I feel like they were decent comic relief for this movie. I feel like they sometimes push it a little bit too far, right. but yeah, you know, it, I'm gonna let yeah, it go. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Sometimes I thought thought it went a little too far, or there were too many cuts to them. So as I was watching the movie, there were times where I was like, mm, I don't know if I would have cut to that brownie at that point. Um, I, although when mm, I, I make, do love a nicely cut yes, brownie, you though. cut those brownies. <laughs> so good with some ice cream on the side. Oh my gosh. And then some hot fudge. So many brownie jokes. Yes, 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 you know, yes. I, like, I love my brownies with hot fudge. I love brownies with hot fudge. And you know what? I like when you swirl peanut butter when you're baking the brownies like i have a swirl peanut butter anyway okay um, i didn't think that i would be podcasting with cannibals these are people we're talking no, about no here. we're not talking about cutting them <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there were times i thought you know if i were a director which i'm not i would probably cut out some of the the shots reaction shots 
to these guys. Cause like there'd be a scene play and all of a sudden you got to go to Brown and him go, oh, and then back. I'm like, was that necessary? It did. It, they cut to them a little too much for things that were unnecessary. I agree with you. Um, I still, though, I, I love Kevin Pollack. I'd seen him. I didn't realize recently. I was like, he looks so familiar to me from something I've seen recently. What was it? It was Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He plays the father <laughs> of Joe Maisel. Joel. Um, That's right. But yeah. he's just so good at the sarcasm. And I love that in this movie, he's like the stupid drunk all the time. And that, like, that's the joke about him is that, you know, he falls into a giant pitcher of beer and then realizes that it's beer and dives back in. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, real quick, there's one character that we have not touched on that is one of my favorites, and it's the baby. The baby reaction <laughs> I was shots. Say that. <laughs> there were so many times where I'm like, oh, well, look at that. Really impressive. <laughs> it is. Like, that baby Great is aware actor. of what's going on. When something bad's happening, the baby cries or has a look of fear. If something happens that's <laughs> funny, the baby's laughing. Like it is so aware of its environment. It's it's great. And the little curls, perfect. And you know, apparently, um I I asked the Google who was the baby, and apparently that's a very often Googled question. <laughs> who was the baby in Willow? <laughs> it was uh twins, right? It was, because apparently at the time that was the, the way to do things, just like Mary-Kate and Ashley on Full House. Yes, that's they're the Mary-Kate and Ashley of Willow, this, the babies <laughs> in this. Mm, mm, classic. No, I, it's funny because I thought the exact same thing. Wow, that baby has a really expressive face. Like, every time they cut to that baby, it's making a face that is absolutely perfect. How did they get that baby to do that? They followed the baby 24-7 and just subbed in the ones they needed. <laughs> Maybe. That, I mean, it's possible. Or that's just the... I mean, that could be the best acted baby ever. Like, why didn't she get an Oscar nod? I know. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up, Bruce, though, talking about characters that um, we forgot to mention. Um, the other little people in this movie, um, actually, I recognized a couple of people. Um, so the guy that plays the sorcerer in the village um, is a special appearance, a guy named Billy Barty, who's done a lot of other movies. Um and I can't think of them all right now. Um, and then also the guy that plays the warrior. Oh, I know. Who yeah, you're Billy Barty was High Aldwin. Phil Fondacaro played Vonkar. Yep. Yeah, he's in a lot of stuff, like Black Cauldron, and I think that's where I recognize him from. And Tony Cox, mm. who played another warrior. I like that the his best friend Migosh reminded me. He was like. I, for some reason, he kept reminding me of Oscar Isaac. It was pretty awesome. Like it was like a kind Oscar of Isaac version in the of face. as a little person. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I was. Yeah, it was very cool. So I, I, I have to say, I think that was one of the things that I really appreciated about the movie is is that you know just facing a whole movie where the heroes uh, and and so much of the story revolves around people that we literally. And figuratively just kind of look down on a lot of times. And I thought it was wonderful to see a movie that celebrated people that are different. And, you know, they really do that in this film by making 
you know, um, Willow and Warwick Davis, the hero of the movie, and they never let anybody steal his thunder. I thought that was really well done. So the movie does a great job in that, and I think it should be praised for using a whole society of uh, of people like that to really bring them forward and, and let them be the stars. I think that's awesome. So... Um, good job for you know George Lucas and and Ron Howard for doing that. So yeah, and Kenny Baker was in there too. He only had one line, but I enjoyed. Oh, seeing really? Him there. Yeah, he was in the background. He usually had a beard and he was playing a drum at one point, and then he was up in like the rafters and he shouted out a line. But yeah, he's in there. Oh, that's he awesome. played R two D two. Who those for those who don't know? And uh, also meant to ask, did you love uh, Burglecut, the guy that was like? Uh, willow was indebted to oh that guy <laughs> drove me crazy i loved when mad martigan goes burgle cut don't let him talk to you like that yeah. <laughs> that was really funny actually that whole scene where he's trying to use whoever will get him out of you know this cage um you know willow don't let him do that to you burl cut don't let him talk to you that way <laughs> that like that was very funny um that was a great i scene. think i would have liked this movie better if that like the group of characters would have stayed together on the journey so there was like more mm-hmm. than just like willow and mad martigan just have you know like more of a posse with you you know with so there's more banter back and forth i can see what you're saying what did you guys i so you know, this this movie has vision, and I think they definitely had a very grand vision for the fantasy elements, and you know, that's one of the things. I was watching the original documentary that came on the Blu-ray, and there's a, a, a special opening to it that was recorded, you know, probably a few months ago when Ron Howard, um, you know, was getting ready for this, this release, and... He comes on and he kind of introduces the movie and everything and this original documentary and just kind of talking about, you know, the differences in filmmaking now as opposed to then and, you know, how they were really pushing the envelope with this movie um, big time. And, of course, you know, much of the movie nowadays, he he says, you know, it, it looks quaint, you know, but... What we were trying to do then is something beyond what we really could even do. And I think that's something that I really see in this movie. This movie has a lot of vision. And it's definitely, again, Lucas pushing those visions, especially with ILM and what they can do special effects wise. You know, again, creating new effects so they can body morph and those kind of things. But just the scale of this movie is really big. Yeah, the special effects really stood out to me because as I was watching this, I thought, wow, this actually looks pretty good. I mean, there's certain scenes where I thought that the special effects were outstanding. And I thought for 1988, were they able to do that back then? And there were some effects that, yeah, that looks like that could probably be from 88. But there were others that I was really impressed. And I started to wonder is this a special edition? Did they go back and do some enhancements to some of the shots, to some of the special effects? And I had to look it up to see, and no, I didn't see anything where there was any kind of work done to this since then. So it is very impressive, especially with the brownies. When you see a brownie on a larger character and that character is moving around, 
and the brownie is moving in the same direction as the body is moving in. And it typically you'd see movies like that and they're not synced and you could tell that he's not really on it. And there were times where I was like, wow, they really matched that. Well, without CGI, I was like, I was very impressed. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that in particular with the brownies, Bruce, because that's what I was thinking with them in the wagon scene that it seemed like there was a lot of back and forth that either was really great editing or it was um, truly like groundbreaking for that time. Because, I mean, I don't even know if green screen filming was a thing at this point yet. Yeah, it was. But a lot of times you could tell. And this one I couldn't yeah, as much. Not as much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think the um, the, the brownies are definitely, I, I would say they're they're really decent, which is good. For this mm-hmm. time period, I mean, they, they they still hold up a lot of the time. There are some times where you're like, mm, you know, they're they're not there at all, you know. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it does. Uh, when I think back to what they're trying to do with the technology of 1988, it is incredible. Um, yeah. and they really are pushing the envelope in every way, shape, and form. You know, even with um, when they have the the other uh, fairy sorceress come on the screen and everything. Um, when they have the fairy kiss him on the nose, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which was really cool. Um, you know, I mean, and then you have some effects that definitely don't hold up at all, like, you know, the two-headed dragon, which doesn't work like the Rancor does in Star Wars because it's not in a dark environment, it's in a light environment, and the rotoscoping yep. on that doesn't make it look the same. So that wasn't real? So, no, that wasn't okay. real. News. That was that was sorry, a practical buddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, then you had some other effects. You know, I, I felt like that the the dogs that they had in the costumes, you know, for those dogs was really pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, the trolls not so good. Uh, the costumes mm-hmm. there not so great. Um, but really, I mean, this this movie is thinking on a vision like what they did with the Lord of the Rings movies or the Hobbit movies, just way beyond what's even possible then. And I really appreciated that they just, they, they went for it, you know? And if it doesn't all work now, you know, that's part of the game of special effects now. But I think what they're creating here vision-wise, you know, it's pretty outstanding. Um, and like you said, Bruce, sometimes some of the things really do hold up and you're like, wow, that's, that's really good work. Well, and especially when you're looking at, like you were mentioning, Matt, the body morphing. Um, I was looking at all of the things that ILM did with this movie. And it, it, in particular, they didn't have a way to do that scene where Finn is morphing into her human form toward the end um, before without doing, like they were saying, stop motion. Um, and so ILM decided that they weren't happy with that and came up with this new way of putting the footage back into a computer program to make the transition more smooth so that it didn't look so choppy, um, I guess is the best way to explain it. And I was thinking about where else I had seen this. And I don't know if you guys remember, there was a TV show called Wishbone of a dog that could morph. (laughs) I was probably too old for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was big when i was young and uh, they yeah, had the same kind of yeah, thing I never saw it. yep um 
so it, anywhere that you see now um, where animals morph to different animals or humans morph into animals or vice versa, um, it, it's coming from starting it, it, at this movie, really. Well, it's, it's, I mean, this is what's great about this, too. They will use this in Adina Jones and the Last Crusade, Terminator 2, Star Trek The uh, Undiscovered Country. So, you know, I think it's, it's really cool. You know, Lucas was always investing back into filmmaking and the things that mm-hmm. ILM would come up with would then go on to give other movies that we love like for me you know i love all three of those movies i just mentioned they're fantastic you know so and the work that they did there was even better than what they did in willow and so but it's because they tried it you know i think it's really fantastic um what did you guys think about you know james horner his famous you know bruce uh, famous for his star trek scores you know he's done braveheart um just a very prolific uh, score master for film. What did you guys think of his score? I thought it was good. I really wanted to get the soundtrack to listen to so I can listen to the music outside of the film, but I thought it worked really well in the film. I heard one particular theme, I guess maybe it's Willow's theme, I don't know, come up every so often, uh, quite regularly. I guess I wish I would have heard a little more variation of themes for each character which I didn't pick up. Not to say that they weren't there, but it just didn't pick up on them. But uh, I, I like James Horner's work. So in this case, from what I heard, I thought it worked really well with the film. Yeah, I have to agree with Bruce on that. I, I felt like it. I can tell that James Horner worked on um, things like Braveheart because of the way that the soundtrack and the score were done for this movie. It felt like it fit perfectly when you're trying to get across those very like heroic scenes or romantic scenes um, and very heartfelt. I think it just further enhanced that feeling of um, pulling at your heartstrings, especially with when Willow was on screen. So I, I really enjoyed the music. Yeah, I did too. Uh, and I was listening to the soundtrack of the last couple of days, and it's interesting because they're like all composers. You know, John Williams does this too, where you will hear, hear certain little refrains, and you're like, oh, uh, yeah, that's a Star Trek one there, or you know, that, that's a you know. So, um, there are a few places in there where where Horner. Uh, you can hear some some moments where he would use that in, in a Star Trek movie um, or, or something else. But no, I really enjoy his work. I like his Willow theme. Bruce, I'm with you. I, I would love to have there be one more theme than just Willow's theme there. But it's a beautiful theme and it's well done. And I think it you know, fits the movie really well. Um, and it's definitely better sounding than a soundtrack like you got in the middle of the 80s with something like Lady Hawk, which I just can't stand that soundtrack, that that synth and stuff, just, ugh, you know, and, and this <laughs> is classic Williams where you're going to have a composer come in and do a classical type score. And so before we get to the ratings, I think an important question to ask about a movie like this is, does it hold up? I think that's kind of a tough question when you're looking at in particular to me, movies from the 80s, because sometimes things can really be dated. Um, and I, I 
kind of felt that with certain things with the, you know, I guess because of the advances of the time being limited, it wasn't their fault. Um, but for me, I, I feel like the things that help it to hold up, I guess answering the question to me, it does, um, are the timeless nature things that are part of this movie. So the fact that the story plot itself is based in, you know, like ancient mythology story, it's something that is always going to be relevant and that grips people. Um, so to me, it does. Yeah, I agree with you on that because of the time period it takes place in, it doesn't look dated. It doesn't look like a bunch of people from the 80s playing these characters necessarily. Maybe work Davis's wig. I don't know. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, the special effects, a lot of them hold up really well, as we discussed. Others, not so much. Pacing wise for this film, the pacing isn't pacing isn't quite what we are used to getting in films like this today. So, but outside of that, for people who are interested in fantasy genre films, I think this does hold up. You know, uh, it is a tough question because I do. I I was thinking about this. Like, does it hold up for today's audience? And I think I fall on the side of what Christy was saying that this movie feels, and, and we referenced it before, but I feel like it feels very much like in the same vein of The Princess Bride. I do think that this movie doesn't have quite the same amount of charm that you got from The Princess Bride. It doesn't have quite the same amount of pull in that but i do think willow comes from the same kind of you know it's it's definitely an offshoot of that and i liked the movie i had a fun with the movie and i'm glad i watched it i'm glad i owned it because i'll go back and watch it again and for me yeah it holds up if i want to watch a movie again regardless of where it's from you know um i'll that's what matters you know and i i definitely think they're like you said Bruce, there are some things that that just aren't the same because filmmaking was different then. I mean, it's the same thing if I go into, let's just say Casablanca, for example. If I go into that with a modern mindset, it's it's not going to hold up because that's not the type of movie it is. It's a movie that's all dialogue, you know, uh, and all shot composition of, of dark and light and all that stuff because it's in black and white. It's diametrically opposed to everything you do in filmmaking today for the most part. And so because of that, you know, does it hold up? Yes. It's, it's one of the best. It's for me, it's the best movie ever made. So yes, but it doesn't mean that it has the same um, flavor as what we get today. So, you know, the same thing with Willow, it, it doesn't have a modern sensibility, but it shouldn't have a modern sensibility because, it hasn't been modern for over 20 years. So, <laughs> um, and that's okay. Uh, and so I'm really glad we, we got a chance to talk about this one. And so I'm really interested to see what everybody rates this movie. Bruce? Well, the question that you had just previously asked about does this movie hold up is somewhat of a difficult question for me 
because of what you were, you were saying about today, how film is related to then. But the reason that that question is a little of a difficult question for me is because the way I felt feel about this movie in 2019 is the same way I felt about this movie in 1988. I feel like the movie holds up as well for me now as it did then. And I remember leaving the theater thinking that was okay. That was enjoyable. As I said, at the beginning of the show, it ain't star Wars, but it was, it was fine. It was enjoyable, but it seems like there's a basic storyline that plays through this. That's just stretched out a little too long. I feel like the movie could be edited down and played a little faster because I don't feel like, as we were talking earlier, I don't feel like there's enough depth in the characters. And I don't feel like there's a lot of com- uh, complexity to the storyline. Not that the story needs to be complex, but maybe need to have maybe more of a B storyline or some other elements going on. It just feels like it just stretches on a little too long for me. As a matter of fact, when I was watching it this time, somewhere in the middle, I found myself uh, tuning out. I wasn't even paying attention. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to be watching this movie. It's not that I don't like the movie. It's just I feel like it just needs something more to it. It feels like a first draft to me. And then they didn't go back to it and say, okay, now let's add a backstory to this character and let's add some depth to this character and let's add another storyline within these scenes. And I just feel like they never took it to that next level. But production-wise, I think it's excellent. I think Ron Howard's directing is really well. I think uh, Warwick Davis does a fine job, excellent job, uh, especially from not having an acting background. And Val Kilmer is on top of things. So I think the elements are there. It just They just need to take it a little further with it. So, um, yeah, I feel the same way I did in 1988 as I do now, and that is I will give this two Golden Girls out of four. What do you think, Christy? So uh, I had some of the same objections that Bruce had as far as the depth feeling a little lacking. I, I completely understand and agree that um, in particular with like Mad Mardigan and with the brownies that they were very surface level and there was nothing really ever explained about their motivations um, or what the ultimate goal was for that character. So they fell a little flat where, as you know, like you were saying, Matt, um, Wesley and the Princess Bride was a lot stronger because they actually explained to you what his background was in the time that he and Buttercup were apart. And we never get that with Mad Mardigan um, as far as when um, he was previously locked in the cage, why that ever happened. Um, and so that would give you a little bit more to like about him or to hate about him, but it'd be something. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it, because this movie is called Willow and that he does such a great job, Work Davis, in carrying that character, that it does end up being a really good movie but i think that there are these these things with um sorsha and mad mardigan that could have been better and the the brownies like i said so um i think ultimately i end up rating it a six out of ten i guess i'm gonna say six out of ten broken wagon wheels (laughs) um you know i there's there's 
I, I like what you pointed out, Bruce. I think I felt the same thing that the, in the middle of this, it did feel like maybe 10, 15 minutes of this movie could be trimmed and make it a little bit tighter. You know, the movie's two hours long. I feel like this could be 245, 250, and, and it would help a little bit. Um, And I think, like you said, part of that is just there are some points where we're you know, we're going over to the brownies a little bit too much, and it's like, okay, this this joke is getting a little bit old, and those kind of things, you know, those kind of places where it, I just feel like, uh, it, you know, a better editing job could have could have created an even stronger film. But I will say, going back and watching this, I did enjoy it, and I had fun with it, and I'm glad I watched it, and you know, watching it, it it kind of made me interested for the fact that you know would they go back and do another willow movie you know now that or a sequel disney owns you know lucasfilm and could be really interesting to see an older willow and and you know just a a a willow movie with the production value that we have now where you could do all of these things would be fantastic so yeah i like this movie um i would say you know it is three out of five I would say this is three out of five trolls. So, you know, it's, it's pretty good. So, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. I really appreciate the fact that we get to do this show each and every week, Christy and I, because of our associate producers here through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millette, and Daniel Noah have all been supporting the show for quite a while now. We really appreciate their support through Patreon. And Patreon is the way that you can help make sure that the network keeps coming to you each and every week, not just the 602 Club. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm, see how you can be part of the team. This truly is a massive enterprise that we put together each and every week for you guys, from the 602 Club to all of the other shows that are coming out. Uh, it's It costs way too much for us to do on our own. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and sign up and become part of the team today. Bruce, always great to have you back in the place where we first met. Where can people find you each and every week? And if they wanted to maybe talk to you about Willow or something else. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me here on the network doing literary treks with Dan Gunther, the official Trek FM Star Trek books and comics podcast. And you can find me with Brandy Jacola doing Live from the Edge. Every Friday night, we are live the day after a Star Trek Discovery episode premieres. And that's at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And that's on YouTube. And then it's released as an audio podcast that you can hear on the Edge feed. And then you can also hear me on the Star Wars Report talking Star Wars, which Christy was on recently, not that long ago. And she does a segment on there regularly every month about fashion. So there you go. She's a regular. And then I'm regular at last. She's a regular. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. And that is about it. Except Ruby owes me another drink. I'll be right back. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, hey, Christy, where can everybody find you? You can find me, of course, here every week, usually on the 602 Club um, and in the Babel Conference. You can also find me um, 
doing once a month, as Bruce said, the segment we just started called Fashion in Five, talking about men's and women's Star Wars fashion once a month, um, and then doing a special daily edition during the week of Star Wars Celebration. So stay tuned for that coverage on Star Wars Report. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter and Instagram if you want to catch up with me as well about anything that I'm doing um, at Bespin Bell. And you can find me all over on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd under the same name, Matt Rushing02. I am here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I am also over on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is called Owl Post. When I do that with Drea Kaufman each and every week, we are talking about Harry Potter one chapter at a time. I'm doing Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills where we talk about Star Wars each and every week. And in fact, I encourage you to hit up this week as we celebrate... A year since Star Wars Rebels left the screen, we are doing Rebels Remembered, so check that out. And then last but not least, you can find me doing Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith. And yeah, we just uh, hit up row one on that show, so check that out as well. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? here.